Hey folks, you're listening to To Know The Land, broadcasting from the Treaty Territories of the Mississauga the Credit, on 93.3 FM at the University of Guelph. Maybe you're listening through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever else you listen to your podcasts. It's a show about our connections with the land base, how we interact with the land, how we learn about the land how we defend the land. My name is Byron, and today I'm at a little little wetland. I see cattails, red osier dogwoods, uh, some buckthorns growing on the edge. On the field where I'm sitting, sort of sloping down towards the wetland, there's some goldenrods, milkweed, sitting beside some golden rods now. There's some... I see, oh, I see a teasel. Uh, Manitoba maple to my left. And across from me is a limestoney cliff wall with a bunch of uh, broke, cedar, dead ashes, black walnuts. On top of the cliff wall is an older forest with some maples, um, oaks in there. Uh, I've seen a lot of uh, Solomon seal in that forest and some other nice stuff that I aren't, aren't up yet. Um, The reason why I'm here, and I'll probably do this recording in two parts. One, uh, one now, and one later in the day, because it's still a little bit cool this morning. I think it's about four degrees now. But uh, last night and yesterday during the day, I was out with friends, uh, riding riding bikes, hanging out, wandering around. And we were sitting down by the river, close to here. And I heard in the distance high-pitched, squeaky noises. And I was like, y'all hear that? You hear that? And they listened, they couldn't hear it. I was like, listen, listen. And like bugged them to keep listening, keep listening. And I was like, just, just come with me, let's go. And then we rode our bikes up the road towards the wetland because I'd, I'd heard it before in previous years and as we we sort of took the other side of the road and so the other side of the road has this sort of access way this path that we rode up that sheltered from the road because of the embankment so you can't hear the other side of the road but soon as we came up equal to the embankment and then past the embankment so that sound could travel and hit us boom it was so loud it was just a chorus of, of spring peepers. It was incredible. It was so loud. And I thought, let's just cross the road here. And we crossed the road. We parked our bikes. We sat down in front of this wetland where I am now and listened to this, this painful chorus of spring peepers. It was, it was incredibly loud. At one point when I walked in closer to the wetland, like was stepping 
on the tussocks and stuff like that. I had to plug my ears because it hurt. It hurt so much. It was amazing. Um, there were just so many of them so loud. And I think later, once it warms up, they'll kick in again. But for now, for now, I gotta just do this recording. Um, as I look around me now, I'm seeing, as you can hear them, two red winged blackbirds. I've seen robins. Uh, I've seen some birds, some smaller brown birds, move quickly around. And my assumption is that they're song sparrows. But then there are some birds out there. There's that weird doo doo. -doo. That one. That one. That one. And there's jays and crows. Um, last night, what caught our attention above the above the the wetlands on on top of the rock cliff face in a big tree, there's an evening grosbeak singing, and that's always exciting. I saw them already. Pardon me, not an evening grosbeak. That's not what I'm trying to say. Uh, Eastern meadowlark. I saw them. I've already heard them singing and saw them singing. And I got really excited. I saw one already this morning. Um, there goes a jay right now. It's just like the hills are alive, you know? It, it's amazing. And uh, while, while I pointed out the Eastern meadowlark, my friend Matt pulled out the Merlin app. which if you haven't tried is really useful. I think that's another Eastern Meadowlark up there. A female. But I thought they were pretty, looked similar. I think I brought a bird one. But anyways, we pulled out, uh, Matt got out his uh, Shazam for birds, what's it called? Um, the Merlin app and with that I didn't bring a bird though with that we are listening to uh, the Easter Meadowlark and it also picked up the Red Winged Blackbird and then it picked up a bird that I don't know much about and that is the Sora and I was like, okay. Um, and it has, has a little red dot beside it. I guess it's not that common. And I was, I was listening for it. And then I got him to play the call that comes with the Merlin app. And it sounded like the Sora. But the problem is the Sora sounds similar to the Spring Peepers. And here's this deafening roar of Spring Peepers all around us and possibly over top of it is a Sora navigating through these tall cattails in this wetland and that's that's about right for a Sora and their behavior but like we never saw it 
and if it can sound like a a spring peeper is it a spring peeper and the app was just confused and I don't want to put it past that but instead of instead of oh it was a Sora oh it wasn't a Sora my thought was come out here this morning keep looking around and if I happen to hear it again I'll be recording anyways so maybe it'll, it'll be it'll be recorded and if I don't see or hear them again then this can be an opportunity to feel inspired to learn about Saurus because I don't know anything about Saurus I know they're a wetland bird I had an idea of what they looked like but that's it is that the eastern meadowlark there? that's the eastern meadowlark that one. And it's so neat that these birds, these the eastern meadowlark, I think we've heard a bobolink um, up here, up on top of the. Oh, there, there's there's an eastern meadowlark flying by right now. You know, hanging on that tree. And then they wanted to develop this area. And I think the city has changed its plan, but, and I hope they have because these species are rare around here. At least I don't see, or maybe they're just not common because people aren't seeing them because people don't go to the wetlands as often. But even the Easter Meadowlark is not that common around here and worthy of, like I mean all animals, all species are worthy of protection, but I think especially if an animal is on, in the decline in our area, then maybe more so. So I'm grateful for those ones being here. But I was thinking, despite my distracted brain, uh, come out here and read a little bit about some of these birds. So I brought as, as if you listen to the show about red-tailed hawk nesting behavior, uh, I talked about I think it's birds of forest and thicket. I think that's what it's called by John Eastman. And I, I brought another one of his books out. And this is uh, Birds of Lake Pond and Marsh: Water and Wetland Birds of Eastern North America by John Eastman and illustrated by Amelia Hansen and it's put out by Stackpole Books and it's got a lot of a lot of birds in it uh, ruddy duck, mute swan, tender swan, snow goose, Canada goose, wood duck, American widgeon, American black duck, mallard, blue winged teal, northern shoveler, northern pintail, canvas back, greater lesser scops, golden eyes, mergansers, kingfishers, cranes, Osprey, bald eagle, northern harrier, grebe, cormorant, heron, egret, a green heron, bittern, loon, alderfly catcher, marsh wren, some warblers, red-winged blackbird, and it also has the rail family, Virginia rail, common moorhen, American coot, and a sora. And we saw an American coot while we were out with the kids working um, a couple weeks ago, not a couple weeks ago, I should say, last week, and then 
Sora possibly yesterday last night so yeah these are great books uh, I think they're out of print but if you can find a, a used copy somewhere it's probably pretty good so I'm just going to read a selection from this and I'll probably turn the recorder off and come back later today and then record again and I might read a selection of a different book while listening to Spring Peepers. So the Sora, according to this book, and this may have changed, uh, the scientific binomial is Porzana Carolina, P-O-R-Z-A-N-A, -A, Carolina, in the rail family. The small rail, about nine inches long, has a short yellow chicken-like bill. Its body, like those of other wading rails, looks laterally compressed. Both ad adults of both sexes are gray-brown with black facial mask extending to the throat. Brown barring on the flanks, yellowish legs, and a short cocktail provide distinctive feel marks. Once described as a tumbling peel, oh, pardon me, most characteristic of the sound of its sounds are a rapid descending whinny, once described as a tumbling peal of shrill laughter, and a sharp keek when alarmed. There are other 13 Porzana rails exist worldwide. Sora is the only North American species. Behaviors. Like the other rails, the Sora seems all legs and toes as it steps daintily over mud and lily pads, its feet, its splayed feet, distributing its weight over unstable surfaces of its habitat. More often, though, it sees one sees it not at all, only hears its startled note, often evoked by a hand clap or toss of a stone into the marsh. The whinny call of a sore often heralds an outburst of similar calls across the marsh. Sores lurk deep in dense vegetation, preferring to slip away elusively in, in the reeds rather than fly. I once caught a sore in a marsh by running it down. Okay, John. Nice flex. When it does fly up, its legs dangle awkwardly, and it plops down only a short distance away. These weak and rare flight occurrences are highly deceptive, however. Most sores migrate 3,000 miles each spring and fall. They also swim and have been observed to walk underwater. The sore is the most common rail in many areas, probably because it tolerates many types of wetland habitat. Sores breed across most of North America, from southern Canada to the middle tiers of the states. Spring. Sora life history. Like that of most rails, is full of prob probabilities, maybes, and unknowns. These birds were not designed for easy observation, and birds that require more hours of field time than researchers can conveniently schedule are the birds we know least about. Probably, most soras arrive in their breeding marshes in late April and early May when pair bonding occurs. Probably two 
probably to their Philopatric, homing to their natal or previous breeding sites. And again, probably they are monogamous only for the duration of a breeding season. Details of all these patterns remain obscure. Facial coloration becomes more vivid at the season, and courtship behaviors include mutual preening and, bow and bowing. Territories average about a half acre in size. Listen for the Sora's distinctive spring call, often voiced at night. The whistled perweep, 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 with rising inflection sounds somewhat similar to the northern bobwhite's covey call or the call of the spring peeper frog. Nesting begins in May. The chicks, glossy, black, leave the nest soon after hatching, usually in May and June. As hatching proceeds over a period of days, one parent feeds the mobile chicks while the other continues to incubate the yet unhatched eggs. Nesting associates of soras often include Virginia rails, marsh wrens, swamp sparrows, and red-winged blackbirds. I gotta learn the swamp sparrow call. Eggs, about 10 to 12 eggs, and they're glossy and tan, they're brown spotted. Incubation by both sexes, about 19 days. The feeding of the young is done by both sexes, usually insects, other invertebrates. Chicks are brooded in the nest for up to three weeks. Fledging at about four weeks. In summer, soars usually nest only once per year, though second nestings do occur. Nest parasitism occasionally occurs when a soar lays eggs in another soar's nest in which case the nest owner often buries the eggs of the intruder. How the nest owner can tell the difference between the two sets has so far eluded researchers. After the juveniles become independent, they and the adults disperse from the home range to larger marshes or upland fields. Oh, upland fields. That's exactly what's behind this marsh here. And even behind me on the other side, that's it's, it's, it's a bunch of upland fields, so that would make sense. They're here and then go up to the fields. In late summer, the birds often frequent the margins of sedge-bordered lakes. Adult soars undergo complete plumage molt by July, oh, pardon me, between July and September. The juveniles also gain adult plumage at this time. In the fall. In late summer and fall, soars congregate, sometimes in large numbers, in wild rice marshes and prime feeding sites. The birds are winging southward, mainly at night, in September and in early October, many flocks of up to a hundred birds. Some researchers believe that the temperature controls the timing of soar fall migration with their low cold tolerance, a hint of frost in the air sends them on their way. Many fly only to the Gulf Coast. Others cross the Gulf to Mexico, Central America, and Northern South America. Many also cross the Caribbean to the West Indies. Winter. A few soars do not migrate, remaining in ice-free marshes on the breeding range through the winter. Most, however, reside in coastal marshes 
from the Gulf and Virginia coast southward. Peninsular forest or Peninsula Florida and Louisiana bayous are areas of the largest winter abundance. A molt of body plumage occurs between January and March. Ecology. Okay, this is a bigger section. Here we go. A denizen of the oozy marsh, as one observer wrote, the Sora may inhabit almost any shallow freshwater wetland site of whatever size, though it favors large cattail and sedge marshes. This isn't large in front of me, but this is all cattails, some sedges, but not too much. Highest breeding densities occur in shallow shoreward sites where changing water levels produce varied plant mosaics. But marshy ponds, wet meadows, bogs, even roadside ditches often host sores too. This would be closest to a roadside ditch. Here the trucks go by now. Sores seem to prefer somewhat wetter sites than Virginia rails, which often occupy the same habitats. Sores, however, seem more opportunistic in habitat use, usually outnumbering Virginia rails in areas where both are present. Several researchers have noticed its frequent use of edges or borders between aquatic plant communities for both nesting and foraging. On their winter range, sores often inhabit flooded rice fields and salt marshes as well. Phoebe. Sorry. The exceedingly well camouflaged nest often lies a few inches above a water depth of 6 to 10 inches, attached to stems and arched over by surrounding vegetation. Composed of dead cattail leaves, bulrushes, or grasses, and loosely built basket holds lining of uh, finer plant materials. A path or slight ramp to the nest is often seen. Sores occasionally nest on the ground in grassy meadows, which is the habitat all around this wetland. Among rails, sores are probably the most, are probably the foremost vegetarians. Their diet consists mainly of aquatic plant seeds, about 75%. Favorite seed foods include those of sedges, bulrushes, wild rice, smart we- smartweeds foxtail grasses, duckweeds are also widely consumed. Ooh, there's not many of that here, so maybe that sore was just stopping over. I don't know. On the winter range, bull, bull paspalum grass and cultivated rice rank high on the diet. During spring and summer, sores consume many high-protein animal organisms as well probing in the mud for aquatic insects, spiders, snails, and small crustaceans. Probably lots of those here. Sores vigorously defend their territories against Virginia rails, but the two coexist in many marshes. Virginia rails favor somewhat drier nesting sites than sores, and also feed mainly on animal material, or animal matter, in contrast to the sores' preference for seeds. Sores also seem more adaptable to varying sizes more adaptable to various sizes and types of wetland habitat. 
Wetland drainage spells the decline of rail populations. Today's Sora abundance reflects the pattern of marsh habitat loss over the past half century. Thus, the Sora's present occurrence tends to be more localized and spotty than formerly. Soras also compete with humans in some rice growing areas of the southeastern United States where the birds winter. <clears throat> Predators are generally the same as for the Virginia rail. Marsh wrens sometimes prey on Sora eggs and muskrats are known to climb aboard the nest using them for feeding platforms. Flooding of nest sites, ingestions of lead shot pellets, and collisions with lighted towers during migration are frequent hazards for the species. The source of the name Sora remains unknown. It may derive from the American Indian term for this bird, which ornithologists once called the Carolina rail. Soras are considered game birds and are legally hunted in 31 states and two Canadian provinces. Relatively few, however, are taken, though a century ago the bird was shot in large numbers, especially during fall, fall migration in Chesapeake Bay and Atlantic coastal marshes. Its flight is so low and steady that it is easily killed, wrote an observer, hardly affording really good sport. Audubon noted many soras in the market stalls of New Orleans in spring. Little information exists on sora lifespan or annual survival rates. Spring bird census takers could hardly gain any idea of this bird's abundance without using taped playbacks of its calls to which the soras readily responded. Despite its typically secretive habits, a sora will sometimes approach an observer imitating its calls or just clicking rocks together and exhibiting itself in full view. So again, that was from Birds of Lake, Pond, and Marsh by John Eastman on Stackpole Books. Out of print now, but very good. So a lot of those descriptions outlined in that book, in that little section on the source there would match this wetland um, last night we consulted with another friend wildlife biologist Matt Isles maybe if you've listened for the show for a while you've heard that interview that I did with him and he was saying that this site's probably too small to host a population or to even host an individual but I think during migration there may be stopovers, right? So maybe they're coming up now. Middle of April, going up to the northern nesting areas, maybe. And maybe they came over and just stopped last night or yesterday in a nice, safe, transitory spot. And then went off. But again, even if they aren't here, it's nice that they came by for a visit and inspires me and friends of mine to now investigate further and learn more about the species. It also brings up this question for me of like, if 
thesaurus sound a lot like the, the spring peepers. Is there a thing about that sound that preep, preep, or the, the spring peeper sound, which I don't think I can replicate? Um, is there a thing about that sound and how it moves over the wetland? I've often wondered, and this may be from a misinformed interpretation from a misheard quote from a film, so like I'm just gonna put some distance between the original and my interpretation of it. But there was a film where uh, folks I think are paddling across Canada through different lake and river systems, all inspired by the books of Farley Mowat. I think the movie is called Finding Farley, I think. Um, but I think they talk about how <clears throat> something along the lines of how the, the, the lakes that the loons are on shape the calls of the loon. And even if some loons die, uh, new loons will move into the ter- t- territory and take up the same kind of calls, same kind of songs. And they might be different from uh, different lake to different lake. And I've also heard before that, like, certain calls work more effectively. Certain songs travel further in forest habitats than would in other habitats. And I would love to speak to somebody to ask some questions about how this works. The idea of the land shaping how we move through it, and, and how we how we what how how the land shapes language is really cool, right? Um, there's this. I, I I search and I lurk up a lot of bird language and a lot of internet articles or stories or whatever about bird language, and something that used to come up a lot. Maybe I've learned how to refine my search. But is this? I think it's Turkish. Um, in the, in the mountains, there are folks that would whistle, and they would whistle to each other in specific ways to convey messages, and it seemed to work according to some of these articles that I read years ago, because of the the high pitch and the indifferent landscape of the mountains of the hills, and the higher pitch maybe worked better. And then I've also heard in passing, without too much details, without too much research, how uh, some indigenous North American cultures say that their language is shaped by the land. And to speak the language is to speak the land. And when you get to, like, Aboriginal creation stories from what is now known as Australia folks talk about how when you go out and you sing the songs and you tell the stories of the land that's what creates the land the land is created through the stories and the songs and so if you take that knowledge could it be that if the land is created by the songs 
could the songs also then be created by the land? Could they be shaped and formed by the topography, by the animals which exist there, the, by the way that the wind moves through the trees? that's why it's so important to be listening to the land, listening to the birds, taking the time to go out and sit there. Yesterday and last night, coming back twice to listen to the frogs. Because if we, if we participate in these ways, then maybe we're getting in better insight into the stories of the landscape. I think I need to spend more time with other people to learn how some of those ways are interpreted. Right now, I'm, I'm at a very much uh, a, a novice listening phase. Just learning how to listen to the land.
Hey folks. So what you're hearing in the background is actually what I recorded right after I stopped talking there. I just picked up the recorder, moved it, and placed it away. And while I was talking about how I was going to come back later and record the spring peepers, and I did, I just think that'd be worthy of its own episode. So I'm going to leave this one as is. If you're stoked to hear the spring peepers, you can either do two things. You can go out and you can listen to them in your own area, find them, and listen to them. Or you can tune in next week or the week after, and I'll have a whole show about spring peepers. And I can read more, study more, learn more about their behaviors, and share with y'all what I've learned. I just feel like, how can I talk so much about the Soras and then only have a little bit of time at the end to talk about the spring peepers? It doesn't work for me. So, this is what I'll do. It'll be good. You can tune in next time. And it should be a show about spring peepers where I'll be interviewing someone about a new book that's coming out. Either one is going to be great. Thanks for listening this week. If you want to learn more about the show, you can go to toknowtheland.com. You can check it out on Instagram at toknowtheland. Or you can email me at toknowtheland at gmail.com. And I can respond to any questions, ideas, feedback, critique, whatever, whatever works for you. Also, if you want to, you can make a donation to the show, www.toknowtheland.com forward slash donate. Every bit helps. I really appreciate it. I really appreciate y'all listening. It's so nice to know that I can share what I'm learning, what I'm hearing, what I'm thinking about, and that other people listen, and then they respond too. Y'all email me and write me notes to the website and that's great I love it I love to hear what y'all are thinking what y'all are learning about yourselves it inspires me so thank you so much that's it take care